This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The Treasury Department issued a notice earlier this month allowing companies to pay pensions to retirees and beneficiaries in one lump sum as opposed to monthly. This reverses an Obama-era pledge to bar employees, uh, excuse me, employers from doing that. The fear was that those receiving a lump sum payment might be shortchanged and also might be tempted to spend the money sooner. Around 26.2 million Americans receive pensions right now, though that number has been declining as businesses favor 401k plans instead. Companies will now be able to get out from under the pension obligation, which Wall Street views as a significant liability. But what does this mean for those who depend on this money for their retirement? With more, we're joined in studio by Olivia Mitchell, Executive Director of the Pensions Research Council here at the Wharton School. She's also Director of the Bettner Center on Pensions and Retirement Research and a Professor of Insurance and Business Economics. And also joining us on the phone, Elizabeth Kennedy, Associate Professor of Law and Social Responsibility at the uh, Selinger School of Business at Loyola of Maryland. Olivia, great to see you. Great to be here. Thank you, Elizabeth. Great to have you with us today. Great being here. Thank you. Thank you. So, Olivia, give us the sense of of why you think this change was made. I guess this goes back a few years as well, as we mentioned, with the Obama administration trying to cut this practice off. Yes. Um, So the concern with defined benefit plans, these are the types of pensions which provide you a monthly benefit check for life as long as you live. The concern with companies offering defined benefit plans is that they really need to manage carefully around future mortality, around investment uh, fluctuations and so on. And many companies in the corporate sector have had a very hard time making sure their plans remained fully funded. I would say probably Probably most corporate defined benefit plans today are not fully funded. So uh, by offering both workers and retirees a lump sum, this helps the corporations take the defined benefit obligation off their books. In other words, if I owe you a present value of a certain amount of money and I give you that amount of money, then I no longer have to worry about covering your retirement payments for life. Elizabeth, this is obviously a a unique shift and and could have wide-ranging impact on on a variety of employees as they get ready to head into retirement. But also, as uh, Olivia kind of lays out, there is an economic benefit that these companies are seeing from this. Absolutely. I mean, I think the appeal for companies is clear. I think, um, as you mentioned, it will have widespread impact on a lot of folks. Um, I think for me, uh, looking at the sort of landscape of the workplace right now, it's actually not so much a unique shift. I think it kind of mirrors a lot of shifts we've seen. And I think the from the corporate perspective, they're thinking this as shifting this risk from their balance sheet to the employees and allowing them to manage this. Where I sit, I see this as a shift not only of risk from the employer to the employees, but also to all of us sort of collectively of the question of, arises of what happens when folks don't manage these well, yeah. certainly not as well as their employers, and then sort of the rest of the social safety net is even further strained um, when folks' defined uh, benefit plan runs out. So I agree with you, but I would also caution that what used to be seen as the golden method of caring for people in retirement, namely defined benefit plans, that golden era is long gone. And many very financially cogent people might well say, gee, you know, I work for a company which is only 
80% funded. Maybe I should take the lump sum and run while the getting's good. And so I understand the attraction of a lump sum, not just for people that uh, make mistakes, but for people who are smart about it. But then the trick becomes that person uh, actually managing that lump sum well in their retirement once they get that money and not you know, spending it in their first five years and then having nothing for the remaining 15 or 20 years of their retirement. That's absolutely true. And we know that people suffer from what I call lump sum illusion. They see $100,000 in their accounts and they think, boy, I'm rich. And $100,000 is nothing. I just looked up the annuity estimations Mm -hmm. uh, to figure out how much it's worth. So if you're male, age 65, and you have $100,000, this would provide you a monthly income of $560 per month. If you're female, you get 530 because women live longer than men. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're thinking that 100,000 or even 500,000 is a lot of money, it's simply not. So, Elizabeth, how is this going to continue to to move this needle forward for a lot of these companies? And and, and how are the employees impacted? Because this is obviously a, it's a changing culture that they've been dealing with for a little while now. But it is obviously a significant concern. I think you're right. And Olivia is absolutely right. This sort of golden standard of what the traditional pension plan looks like has changed. I mean, on my way up to my office this morning, I stopped by an economics colleague and I told him I'd be talking on the show. And he said, oh, pensions, those still exist, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so and I think that's a sentiment shared by a lot of people. But this really is a lot of folks. Um, and so I do think in terms of moving the needle forward, to me, I feel like in fact, some things have changed about our economy in recent years that look actually a lot more like the conditions that impelled the creation of these programs in the first place. So thinking about the gig economy, the sharing economy, the rise of independent contractors, there's a lot of folks who are working in these sort of uh, temporary jobs over the course of their lifetime. And I think while it's true that this defined contribution plan from a single employer perspective looks perhaps like a thing of the past, I think we're the the burden is on us collectively to think about what is the solution for the future. And so how do you have workers who are going to be making perhaps low wages over a course of their lifetime with a variety of employers in any meaningful way, sort of accrue meaningful defined contribution plans that result, as Olivia says, in something more than, you know, just a few hundred dollars a month later on. So, oh. Yeah. I was going to say, how concerned are, are you that as we move even forward, uh, further down the road, that that 26.2 million number that I mentioned of Americans receiving pensions right now is going to even further significantly decrease? Well, exactly. And so that's the that's the rub here is sort of, as Olivia mentions, that sort of, you know, the dangling of the shiny lump sum. If If of these 26 million folks, a lot of these get just sort of converted over to a lump sum, um, then really that sort of gold standard is diminished even further. And then what impacts does that have on, on the rest of this system that I think we've seen the 401k system, maybe for some workers who are incredibly savvy and um, have high income that they can contribute to their plan and perhaps have employers match. But for uh, you know millions and millions of workers who frankly, just don't look like that employee profile. What is the solution with, you know, a a mix of 401k, Social Security? Um, I think the challenge is on us and from sort of public leadership is defining that instead of simply focusing on the chipping away. So um, a couple of points. One is that um, many older people, in fact, many more older people today are entering retirement with far more debt 
than they did in the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is some research that we've conducted using the health and retirement study. And what we see is the baby boomers are getting into retirement, not having paid off the mortgage, not having uh, paid off their credit cards. And to be honest, a lump sum in such a case could really help older people right. pay off their debt and move into retirement less exposed to interest rate fluctuations. So I, I do confess some sympathy for that point. Another point I would make is that um, I think the defined contribution 401k model has been exceptionally positive for people that didn't used to have an opportunity to be in defined benefit mm-hmm. plans. You had to stay for life and never leave your employer. And, right. and defined contribution plans, I think, are uh, much more appealing. What's missing in the defined contribution model to date is any way to protect against longevity risk at the point of retirement. So I actually favor putting an annuity back into a defined contribution plan so that people can, in fact, protect against living too long. So, Elizabeth, if if an employee is brought with this idea of being presented a lump sum, what are their options at that point? Well, I mean, it is entirely voluntary, right? So I think well, at, at this stage, so working within the parameters of what's on the table right now, you know, this is a, it's a voluntary choice. Um, it is one, as I think we've made clear, is sort of clouded a bit by the financial realities that worker may be facing, whether they feel like it's an entirely voluntary choice or whether this is really the only option in keeping the home or having any financial solvency. Um, so I I mean, that's that's sort of where they're at, um, you know, in terms of whether or not it's a collectively bargained. So some workers who right. are in these multi-employer plans, um, they have a union. So you are those are governed by a collective bargaining agreement. Um, those workers may have more rights. But, I mean, that's also paralleling this, you know, the decline in union density. So that golden standard of long-term lifetime pension is diminished in the same way that um, – folks' access to a labor union, collectively bargained pension uh, is also diminished. So the choices are not looking good. And I, I do sympathize with the with the companies in that they're having to compete with others in their marketplace that are not offering or have not offered these um, kinds of plans. And again, that's sort of, again, the role I see of public leadership and regulation and trying to make it a level playing field so that those within a particular industry aren't disadvantaged by offering something that I think has traditionally worked. Um, and I think still, though perhaps viewed as outdated, I think there are models for this that could sort of reinvent themselves to meet the needs of the future economy as well. So all this, just to give a bit of a historical perspective, really uh, took off in 1974 um, when the Employee Retirement Income Security Act was passed by the U.S. Congress. And the idea was that defined benefit plans needed to be fully funded to make good on the promises offered to the retirees. Um, Unfortunately, uh, in the establishment of the act and some of the institutions surrounding that, they didn't quite get it right. So, for example, they established the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which is supposed to be there to back up corporate defined benefit plans if the corporations go bankrupt and there's not enough money in the plan. But they didn't set the premiums right. They didn't set them right for single employers, and they certainly didn't set them right for the multiple employer unionized plans. So as a consequence, not only are corporate plans uh, troubled financially now, but the backup entity that's supposed to be insuring the defined benefit plans also is in dire straits. The multiple employer system is within a few years of running insolvent, and the single employer plan is going to go out 
be unable to pay it all it should pay by 2025. So the whole defined benefit edifice, if you will, I think is in ruins. Yeah. And I don't see any way to fix it um, easily. Now, what I will say is that there are some restrictions on lump sum payouts that right. I wanted to bring to the conversation. So, for example, if you have a single employer plan, and this is all corporate, private sector, none of this affects public sector plans, right. by the way. right. Um, then if the plan is not at least 80% funded, you can't get the full lump sum payment. If the plan is less than 60 for 60% funded, then you can't get any. And then there's, you know, you might be able to get half. So notwithstanding the treasury's, uh, willingness to allow more lump sums, it's really going to depend on the funding status of the plan. So I don't think people should, you know, uh, Book the trip to Las Vegas just yet, <laughs> but I but I would think just from the fact that that you note those two uh, different levels is that we understand how many entities are underfunded. There are a lot of them out there right now. But my question would be, are, are there a, a relatively significant number that are down near that 60% level that you you believe? My sense is probably yes. The Oof. other issue is that over time, over the last 40 years, many, many corporations have frozen and or terminated their defined benefit plan. So, right. for example, um, you might have accrued benefits up to a certain date, but after that freeze date, you get no more. And so what that means is that when you retire 20 or 30 years later, you've got nothing under the old plan to show for it. So I think it's an increasing concern. Um, the The insolvency of the PBGC, I think, is driving many people's interest in taking that lump sum. And I sympathize with that. And Elizabeth, this, I think, becomes an even greater concern right now because of the number of baby boomers that are either have just gone into retirement or soon will be in retirement. Absolutely. I mean, this is the the baby boom is something that has cascaded throughout the economy. And actually, the workers that I have studied um, have largely served baby boomers in, or will be certainly, which is domestic workers, which is nannies, housekeepers, and particular with the baby boom generation, elder care providers. Right. So again, this is a segment uh, that's fast growing. Um, home health aides, hospice care; these are industries that are growing. Workers who traditionally are independent contractors, or they lack any of this sort of menu (laughs) cafeteria plans of different retirement options. And for them, I think the struggle is, um, you know, how to how to save when your income is so low in the absence of any employer contribution. And so uh, that has impacts as well going up the chain to these same retirees and baby boomers who now will also have less money themselves individually to pay for this kind of care. So there's sort of this intersection between retirement, savings, solvency, um, and the ability to meet sort of basic human needs of this baby boomer generation. I'm kind of curious from Olivia, like, where you see, is there a sense among employers in this space of there being some medium between defined benefit, you know, all in or defined um, contribution in which I don't know what the figures are of what employers typically match, if at all. But I'm wondering if there's some way to still boost the the payout and the the sort of economic you know impact of a 401k plan while at the same time acknowledging that some, you know, the divide between low-wage workers and higher-wage workers in that sphere is so radically different than that in the defined benefit plans. 
Well, to answer your question a little bit obliquely, what I would point to is the fact that Social Security is a very progressive system in that the replacement rates provided to low-wage workers are quite high, 60 percent, maybe even higher, so that that implies that low-wage workers that are already probably strapped for cash during their work lives mm-hmm. need not save as much because they're going to get a lifetime annuity from the federal government. Right. Now, I hasten to add that, to my mind, one of the biggest problems we face in the U.S. is that Social Security itself is facing insolvency. Yeah. Right. And within about 12 years, benefits will probably have to be cut for everyone, retirees, mm-hmm. us, workers, etc., by maybe 30 percent or else taxes will have to go up 60 to 80 percent. So the fact that we're not, as a country, you know, that our politicians are not looking at this seems to be um, a really urgent matter. But what Mm -hmm. I would say is that given Social Security replacement rates are pretty high, and given that many um, government programs are means-tested, by which I uh, mean to say that if you have assets, they give you fewer benefits, Mm -hmm. um, it's completely rational for many people in the bottom third of the wage distribution not Mm -hmm. to save at all. And so I think if we look at the retirement picture, we have to really understand the incentives we're putting in people's way or the disincentives to save. 844-942-7866 is the number. If you would like to join in with a comment or, que- a comment or questions, uh, you're uh, talking with Olivia Mitchell of the Wharton School, Elizabeth Kennedy of Loyola University in Maryland, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I saw one estimate this morning, Olivia, that saw that if somebody were to take a lump sum, the potential loss that they could see by doing that is 15 to 20%, which when you think about it, over the course of a 20 to 30-year period, depending on how long somebody may very well have in retirement, that's a significant amount of loss. And Elizabeth kind of touched on it, with, especially when you're talking about health care costs that, that people have to deal with. I don't know that particular estimate, but what I would say is the following, that typically employers manage retirement plans um, less expensively. That is, they pay fewer fees, fewer commissions, et cetera. And they can buy life annuities or pay life annuities for their workers much cheaper yeah. than what the workers could get on their own. Mm. So if you do get a lump sum, obviously to maintain tax protection, you're going to want to roll it over into some sort of in- individual retirement account, IRA. Yeah. But then you have to be very careful that the money that you're investing in that IRA is not frittered around, uh, frittered away in expenses. Another thing you can do with all or part of the IRA money is buy yourself an annuity. Um, And that, again, comes with some pros and cons. So, for example, if you're female and you get a benefit from a company, they're not allowed to discriminate against you on the basis of sex. Right. And we know women live longer, so when you're in a pool with men, you're going to get a higher benefit than you would if you went out and bought your own. Right. Conversely, if you're a man, then you should take it out by an annuity on your own, and you'll get a higher benefit. So it's it's a subtle set of issues. But Elizabeth, it, it, as Olivia, Olivia brings up, this becomes a, another interesting point from the perspective of man versus woman, and the fact that women are living longer, and this will impact women probably more significantly than it will men. 
I think that that's true. I think there's also so many other things, again, getting back to the sort of intersections between, you know, aging and care and you know, all these other issues that are also highly gendered. Um, yeah, the, the treatment of women <laughs> after retirement is no different than women's experiences um, in some ways in the workplace elsewhere. But that's a whole other radio show. Right. <laughs> um, but I do think that, you know, yeah, thinking about this, and to my mind, thinking about now you have workers, and again, some of whom are incredibly financially savvy, and that's how they've, you know, that's their career in the first instance. But for others, it's hard to imagine that when we're saying we're replacing a system because huge institutions are unable to invest in ways that yield real tangible benefits for their workers long term, it's hard for me to imagine that that is not replicated when many, if not most, individuals are now in that same position of managing their retirement. And then that comes back to, again, this question of then who's bearing that cost ultimately? The worker for sure, but then all the rest of us for whom, yes, those social benefit programs that are means tested, taxpayers pay for. So do we are we just shifting in some ways the costs um, of mismanagement from the individuals who originally held the money to those of us who are taxpayers who will pay for the health insurance and the care and the housing costs and all of that um, for folks who can no longer afford it themselves? One thing I wanted to point to in this context is the fact that some employers are starting to pay much more attention to what they're calling financial wellness. Yeah. And the reason that they are working to try to help people manage their debt better and save better and budget better is that they find that it reduces employee stress. Mm. So, for example, if you're having the credit card or the debt collector calling you at work several times a day, that's obviously going to make you a less productive worker. So some firms, especially I've seen in the financial sector, are integrating this financial wellness into their benefit package. Another piece of that is also health uh, attention, health attentiveness. Our group, the University of Pennsylvania, provides a subsidy if you go to the gym and if you enroll in these uh, different healthcare programs. So I believe that there's increasing research that shows that this is actually a really good investment. Elizabeth, from the legal perspective for a second, I would imagine with this change being made uh, by the Treasury, uh, that obviously this becomes a noteworthy point where pensions are concerned. And as we go out the next few years, depending on who has control of Congress and who has control of the White House, that this will continue to be an issue that will probably be brought up and be looked at as we go down the road and, and whether or not there is a change back from this in, in in some period of time. Absolutely. And I do think that that's difficult. I can imagine as an employer, um, you know, you need to have some certainty around the law and the direction we're heading in order to make the right changes. But I do think Olivia is correct. Their worker, you know, employers and companies, they, they want to see their workers in many instances either succeed long-term or at least remain with them because <laughs> the cost of turnover is so great. So they want to be able to make informed decisions about workplace policy that hopefully are consistent over time. So it, to that, you know, to that point, I do think that this is probably this is what's going to come in the coming years. And unless there is, you know, significant change at the federal level and congressional level to sort of look at this and to really think about the implications, not only for the individual 26 
plus million workers who are affected by this change. But again, thinking through this long term collectively, how does this interact with Social Security as Olivia raises? Um, you know, is what what is the future sort of proactive solution to this mm-hmm. problem that has plagued us forever? Is there a Olivia? Is there a as you look at at this designation by the Treasury Department? How does this relate when you you mentioned before public versus private in terms of the different pension plans that are out there? Is there a is there a a difference in how this could be handled by a public entity in terms of the payment out of the pension compared to compared to a private company? Well, public sector pensions are typically state and local. Yeah. And they would be governed and by... And many under, underfunded right now, as right, we know. Yeah. Uh, 3,000 of them in Pennsylvania alone. Um, many of them are, uh, most of them are going to be regulated by state um, insurance regulation or, you know, constitutional regulation even. And so I don't see the states moving to um, lump sums. But what we do see over the last 20 years is that many states have realized their defined benefit plans are in deep trouble. And so they've put in place a hybrid system. So you, the, the DB defined benefit plan might be the lower tier, but then on top of that, they they have instituted a type of defined contribution plan. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a nice mix so that people do get the benefits of both. Elizabeth, final thoughts? Um, you know, I think that... Thinking, as Olivia was just talking, I was thinking about the millions of workers, too, at the state levels in various states that where those workers don't have access to Social Security at all, right? So I think that it's important as we think about policy long term that we think about all the different groups of workers, how they're impacted by these changes, um, and then really what the true costs are to all of us collectively. So I'd like to see more attention on all of these different ways in which workers, especially those who are already vulnerable as low-wage workers in non-traditional workplaces um, be factored into this calculation about risk. Elizabeth, thank you for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank Have you. A great day. Thank you, Olivia. Great to see you. My pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. Olivia Mitchell from here at the Wharton School, Elizabeth Kennedy at Loyola University down in Maryland. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.